It was about four o'clock on the 10th of May 1941 when my father arrived at the Messerschmitt uh, airfield in Augsburg and uh, after having ordered to prepare the plane he uh, gave an envelope to his adjutant Pinch which contained a letter to Hitler and um, he then went to the plane and uh, set off for on a mission of peace which um, still is uh, one of the great mysteries of the Second World War. details about uh, the flight and the intentions uh, of making peace with Britain and um, since he's not anymore alive we might never know about these important things for history. The flight of Rudolf Hess from Augsburg to the hills of Scotland in May 1941 remains one of the greatest mysteries in military history. This documentary traces that story through his son, Wolf Rudiger Hess, who today lives in Munich. And we begin in Munich in May 1921, when one man was plotting a new Germany. His name, Adolf Hitler. I can tell you what my mother tells me, that uh, she lived together with him in those days in the same uh, uh, hotel, and um, he, she tells that he came home one evening excited very much and uh, saying I've met the man who is going to break the Versailles uh, chains and um, this was Hitler and he has met him in a, in a small meeting in those days it was not the big national party it was a very small organization of about um, let's say 20 people or so and Hitler had delivered a speech there and my father listened to this speech and he was completely excited and came home and told my mother, you must come with me the next time and see this man. Rudolf Hess became member number 16 of the National Socialist Party. He quickly became a follower and a friend of Hitler and they were both imprisoned in November 1923 following an attempted coup against the German government. Hitler trusted my father uh, very obviously uh, and uh, I think the, the close connection between the two men came when they were both in Landsberg uh, prison. They were together every day and Hitler wrote uh, by typing itself uh, himself in, into the machine Mein Kampf and he used my father as a sort of a um, sounding board and um, to check whether it was understandable for the public. 
By 1929, the National Socialist Party had become a mass movement. Within four years, that mass movement had swept Hitler to power. And one of his first appointments was to make Rudolf Hess a government minister and deputy Führer of the party. He had to lead the party, he had to watch that laws which came out were in line with the party ideals and ideals, and uh, he was um, called the uh, conscience of the party. Dank ihrer Führung wird Deutschland... Hess quickly became a leading party spokesman, and in this rare recording is heard introducing party leaders at a rally in Berlin. Heimat zu sein für alle Deutschen der Welt. Then, in 1937, his only child was born. He was christened Wolf Rudiger Hess in the presence of his godfather, Adolf Hitler. But Wolf Rudiger would have few memories of his father. Yes, I have only two. I've been a child of three and a half years and I have only two recollections, both which uh, are con connected with... Uh, drastic uh, uh, situation. The one is that uh, I dropped in our uh, garden pool and uh, could not swim, of course, in those ages. And uh, my father was in the vicinity of the pool and he took me out. Uh, and uh, I still can re very much remember to see how uh, his hand came and, and grabbed me and took me out. The other thing was I was lying in, in bed one evening and a uh, bat came through the window and caught herself in my, my hair and I screamed like hell and uh, my father came into the room and took the bat out of my, my hair and let it out uh, of the window. Do you remember Hitler from this time? No, not at all. Yet he was your godfather. He was my godfather and he was also uh, at our home in, in Halaching in 1938 when there was a festival of my name-giving on September the 1st, 1939, Hitler attacked Poland. Two days later, Britain and France declared war on Germany. Hess was concerned at the escalating violence that a spreading war would bring in its wake. Yeah, mainly uh, about the warfare against uh, uh, civil, uh, civil persons with the bombing of the cities. And uh, he uh, said that uh, he can very much... Um, uh, imagine the uh, um, situation, how it's going to come, uh, seeing rows of uh, children coffins with weeping uh, women behind it and all the other way around, seeing uh, rows of uh, uh, coffins of women with weeping children behind it. Next to fall was Denmark, Norway then France. But behind the scenes, attempts were made at reaching peace with Britain. Contacts were established with British Conservative Party peers, including the Scottish Duke of Hamilton. And at the centre of the German peace efforts was Rudolf Hess. Yes, uh, there were uh, a lot of contacts, and my father used Albrecht Haushofer, the son of his best friend, Professor Karl Haushofer, who had uh, known uh, the Duke of Hamilton from before the war. And... Um, they, uh, the Albrecht Haushofer and the Duke of Hamilton exchanged letters with these peace initiatives. And this was very much with your father's blessing? Of course it was uh, uh, with even Hitler's blessing. In May 1941, Rudolf Hess decided to strike for peace himself. 
It was a bold initiative whereby Hess would fly to Britain on his own, make contact with the Duke of Hamilton in Scotland, and then return to Germany, having presented his conditions for peace. It was an extraordinary plan devised by Hitler's deputy Führer. The day my father left, the 10th of May, 1941, uh, he came around noon into the bedroom of my mother. She lay in bed because she was not too uh, well on this day. And um, my mother immediately recalled that uh, he wear a blue shirt rather than a white shirt. And she always uh, wanted him to uh, to wear blue shirts because she was, was of the opinion that blue shirts are uh, much better for him and he's looking much better. And she asked him, why do you wear a blue shirt today? And he said, oh, just a, nothing to say, it's just a, a mood. Did he tell your mother where he was going? No, of course not. What did he say? He said, I've got to go to Berlin and uh, I might uh, be away for one or two days or even longer. Accompanied by his adjutant, Lieutenant Karl-Heinz Pinch, Rudolf Hess set off by car for Augsburg. Here was located a Messerschmitt production plant manufacturing fighter and bomber aircraft for the Luftwaffe. The plant also contained an airfield and a Messerschmitt 110, which was assigned to Rudolf Hess. They reached uh, the, the Messerschmitt airfield and he asked that the, the plane is uh, fully fueled and everything is prepared for... The, the long flight, and um, he gave uh, Pinch, his adjutant, an, an envelope and said, if I'm not back within um, four hours, then you take this envelope to uh, Hitler. Pinch uh, later told that they were sitting uh, all together in the office of uh, one of the Messerschmitt uh, people, and uh, time went on and went on, and uh, after four hours, they... Uh, opened, as my father had said, the outer side of the, of the envelope and uh, they found a paper in there that uh, he's on his way to uh, Britain. It was shortly after 7pm when Lieutenant Pinch left the Messerschmitt airfield at Augsburg, taking with him the letter for Hitler. He travelled by car and train to Hitler's country residence and he arrived before midnight. Yeah, Pinch uh, went to the to Berchtesgaden, uh, to the Obersalzberg and... Um, gave Hitler, uh, after some waiting time, the letter, and um, Hitler wrote, uh, read it, and um, started uh, screaming at Pinch, uh, and you did know all about this. And Pinch, uh, according to what really happened, said yes. And uh, I think Hitler was uh, aware that my father is going to fly to, to Britain, but he played a, a good role in... in after receiving this letter, to be very much uh, surprised by it. Yes, indeed, because uh, Pinch, of course, was arrested, and many other people yeah. too. Yes, uh, Pinch uh, uh, and uh, his secretaries and other adjutants were arrested, but uh, you have to bear in mind that Hitler never did anything against uh, the family, and the father of my father died in October 1941, and uh, Hitler wrote a letter of condolence uh, to uh, my grandmother. Yet at the same time, Hitler issued a communique saying that your father was mentally unstable. Yeah, uh, I think um, uh, this uh, was not uh, done by Hitler, it was done by, by his uh, pre press uh, adjutants. And it's known in the meantime that Goebbels uh, got furious about this because he said he put the 
finger right into the wo uh, wound, saying, aha, uh, now the people say the, uh, we are run by, uh, by mad people, which of course was right. It was also the reaction of the, of the, of the, of the public. So it backfired. It backfired, yes. The North Sea sky that Saturday night was crystal clear, the silence broken only by the sound of a Messerschmitt bomber and its pilot, Rudolf Hess. By 10pm, he crossed the coast of Scotland and then began to search for a place to land. Yeah, I think that um, he in, uh, originally intended or had the uh, information that he was going to land somewhere because it's not uh, possible to imagine that uh, a man who prepared this flight down to the last detail forgets about the most important thing at the end, how to get out by parachute of this plane. And um, you can see uh, the last uh, miles of his uh, flight uh, when the, the course is printed on a the, on the map is rather zigzag and um, so he got in a way lost and uh, then he described in a letter how he uh, tried to get out of the plane that he opened the screen and was pressed by the uh, air pressure to his seat and couldn't get out and so and then finally uh, he got the plane to a standstill uh, in, in shooting it up to the to the sky and the the, the engines were not uh, possible to cut off because they were too uh, overheated so they continued to run anyhow he succeeded finally to uh, get the plane um, to stand still uh, for a short moment where he could drop out, then landed pa by parachute uh, in Flores Farm Field uh, in south of Glasgow. It was just after 11pm on the night of May the 10th when the deputy Führer landed by parachute on British soil. He landed 12 miles from the home of the Duke of Hamilton and within minutes he was confronted by a local farm worker, David McLean. This uh, ploughman of the of Flores farm, Mr McLean, uh, got aware of uh, the crash of the plane and he uh, looked out and saw uh, my father still caught by the, by the, by the parachute. He went out and um, taking a, a fork with him as, as a weapon and... Um, saw my father and uh, asked him uh, who you are and my father said I'm a, a German officer uh, on a peace mission and uh, please bring me to the Duke of Hamilton. There was of course no Duke of Hamilton. No there was no Duke of Hamilton because uh, Duke of Hamilton was sitting in Turner's airfield and was not at home. And do you believe he was aware that Hess was arriving? Yes absolutely because uh, it is known that the Duke of Hamilton uh, in the afternoon uh, started a plane and went uh, out and up to the sky in order to uh, find my father coming. So what had gone wrong? This is a big question. I think this is still buried in the, in the documents which are uh, classified until 2017. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed. 
The following morning, the British Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, received a message that Rudolf Hess had landed in Scotland. That morning also, the Duke of Hamilton was brought to meet Hess at Maryhill Barracks, where he was now under arrest. But Churchill showed no interest in discussing peace with the Deputy Fuhrer. To Churchill, the war was turning in Britain's favour, the Brits had been endured, the Battle of the Skies was won, and there were rumours that America would soon enter the war. Churchill quickly imposed a news blackout on the Hess visit. Yes, uh, Churchill um, was able to, 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 to steer the whole case as being Prime Minister, and um, he, uh, of course, knew that he uh, should not uh, tell the British people the real reason why my father came, so um, he just shut him away, or locked him away. And literally, for the next uh, four years of the war, your father was hardly heard of again? Yes, I think there, there was nothing, uh, with the exception of uh, a question in the, in the House in 1943, uh, where somebody asked whether now the real uh, background of the trip of Mr. Hess could be told. There was nothing at all. But the question remained as to what had gone wrong. For example, would a German government minister and Hitler's deputy Führer fly to enemy territory without some arrangement or commitment in place? Was Hess expecting to be met? And were the British aware he was coming? There have been many, many theories over the decades, but more recently evidence has come to light implicating the British Secret Service. Yes, uh, we know in the meantime that MI6 was involved in, in, in the trap business uh, with my father up to their neck, but not uh, in order to uh, just lure Hess to, to Britain in order to uh, make it difficult for Germany, but uh, they uh, very obviously intended to get uh, my father to Britain as a sort of an ignition uh, to overthrow the Churchill government. And why would they want to do this? Because they were very much conservative people in, in MI6, and uh, they were of the opinion that this war between Britain and, uh, and Germany uh, only would lead to uh, destruction of Europe. And they would, of course, have had many contacts with the likes of the Duke of Hamilton. Yes, of course. They uh, <clears throat> uh, were also involved in, in the so-called peace party in, in, in Britain. There were a lot of influential people, starting from Lloyd George uh, down to the Duke of Hamilton and other people who were of the opinion that uh, making peace with Germany is much better for the British Empire than um, continuing the war and uh, becoming the junior part of America. So what exactly would your father's arrival uh, achieve in that respect? I think that uh, uh, they needed, uh, from the peace party, they needed a sort of a push. And if my father, uh, the deputy Führer, uh, arrives in the country and says, we want peace in Germany, why don't you uh, follow us, British people? If uh, to the British public in May 1941, it was really known that Hess arrived uh, in order to make peace, it would have been, uh, went over the country like a bush fire over a dry step. I think this was the um, idea uh, from MI6 with the arrival of my father. Throughout the war years, Hess was imprisoned in various locations in Britain, including a spell in the Tower of London. He had virtually disappeared without trace, until 1945, that is, when the Germans surrendered. Yesterday morning, 
at 2.41 a.m. at General Eisenhower's headquarters, General Jodl signed the act of unconditional surrender. Five months later, in October 1945, the 51-year-old Hess was transferred by plane to Nuremberg in Germany, ironically taking the same route that he took in 1941 in his Messerschmitt 110. Then at 10 a.m. on the 20th of November, the Nuremberg Tribunal proceedings began. 21 defendants, including Hess, were instructed to enter their pleas of guilty or not guilty. Rudolf Hess. That will be entered as a plea of not guilty. He did not recognize the court and he had to show this in all his uh, actions, uh, uh, to, to demonstrate it in all his actions. And there also, uh, if he would have defended himself, he would have given uh, some, some justice to the, to, the, to the court. He was convicted finally of crimes against peace. Yes, he was accused of all four, uh, and he was uh, expressively exonerated uh, on the two uh, criminal charges, which were war crimes and uh, crimes against uh, humanity. The sentence was life in prison, and in the summer of 1947, Hess was transferred to Spandau Prison in the outskirts of Berlin. He, along with six other prisoners, Speer, Funk, Raider, von Schirach, von Neurath and Donitz, travelled by plane to Berlin, viewing on the way the ruins of the city that lay beneath. He became prisoner number seven in Spandau, and in this former 19th century prison, the seven Nazi leaders were detained in primitive conditions. He never wrote about it, but we knew uh, uh, from uh, other people that would have been released, uh, especially Speer and, and Schirach, and uh, you could uh, call them drastically uh, inhuman. He had a cell of nine by eight feet and uh, a wooden uh, bed uh, with no mattress rather than uh, a straw uh, and um, a table and a stool. And the window was high uh, above uh, themselves uh, under the ceiling so they could see, see only the the sky and nothing else. And what about possessions? Did he have them with him? Yeah, to my knowledge, he was allowed one uh, toothbrush, and that's it. And what about talking to the other prisoners who were there? They were not allowed to, to talk among themselves. They were, I think they were allowed uh, on certain uh, days and certain times to go into the garden together. But uh, when they um, wanted to talk, they were... Uh, punished afterwards. Did they have prison work? Yes, they had to glue envelopes and uh, work in the garden. Humor, humorous uh, story told by, by Speer to me that um, my father was asked by the um, uh, warders to, uh, to water some place of the garden and he said, I have nothing to do with the water, we have, we have two admirals here, they can do it, they uh, know how to work with water. How many hours a day were they locked in their cell? I think almost uh, the whole day, and they only had very narrow times when they were allowed to get out. And, of course, no contact with the outside world? 
of course, no, nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. In the beginning, also, it was not allowed to write letters, for example. So the conditions really were appalling. Yes, you could you could say this. For the next 22 years in Spandau, Hess received no visits from his family. This was by his own wish, arguing that his conditions were degrading and his imprisonment unjust. Eventually, he was permitted to write letters to his mother, to his wife and to his son, including one letter to his wife on the 21st of October, 1951, having been informed of the death of his mother. My dear ones, I thank you from my heart of a gentle way you informed me of the so tragic news. So it has happened, after all, the inconceivable. I had, of course, to reckon with this, but I still hoped she might be with us for a few more years and that we would see each other again, as she also believed. I am unspeakably glad to know that at least she was not conscious of her false hopes and that she passed peacefully away without a struggle and without the pain of parting from you, the children, the loved little grandson and her faraway eldest child. What exactly would your father write about in the letters that he wrote uh, subsequently to you and your mother? He would touch on almost every uh, theme you could imagine. And he was a very, very knowledgeable uh, person and he could uh, talk about almost everything. And he did uh, do this in his letters. And he asked about you a lot? He asked about me a lot and he also tried to, uh, to educate me through his letters. For example, he once wrote to me that uh, what you are doing is in the end not so important, but uh, it is important that uh, you do it with all your energy and with all your commitment. Did he ever complain in these letters? No, never. And did he ever talk about his possible release in the future? Yeah, of course, he always uh, uh, said that he is of the opinion that he should be released, and uh, he, I think he hoped up to his last day that he would be released. Throughout the 1950s, von Neurath, Radar, Donuts and Funk were released one by one from Spandau. Then, on the 30th of September, 1966, Speer and von Schirach were also released, leaving Rudolf Hess on his own in the Spandau fortress. In what way I went through those three dreadful days when I knew that the other two were packing their things baffles me. One of my retired colleagues asked me whether what was happening got on my nerves, to which I replied that of course it was not exactly a pleasure to watch the others packing their things while mine remained entirely unpacked. I told them to get on and finish it, so that peace would prevail once again. Yes, he was uh, the only man in this big huge prison and uh, this was a sort of a solitary confinement uh, which was without any example, if you uh, take our modern times and not uh, medieval times. He had nobody to talk to all of a sudden. With the exception of the of the French priest, which came to see him every week for one and a half hour, there was no uh, uh, people 
to really talk to, yes. Was he breaking or cracking under the pressure? I would say no. Uh, this is one of the astonishing uh, sides of my father that he, uh, under these very heavy uh, strain, did not break. For the next three years, Hess lived in solitary confinement, his only company being the birds in the prison yard. Then, in 1969, he formally contacted the Spandau Directorate, requesting a visit from his wife and his son. I request a visit from my wife and son, if possible, on the morning of the 24th December. It is the first visit for 28 years, and I therefore request that no witnesses be present in the room at the beginning of the visit. The conversation I will conduct with my family can be recorded on tape. I also promise that I will not shake hands with them, and my family will make a similar promise. I request that it be taken into account that in the course of 20 years von Schirach and Speer received a large number of visits, but that this is my first. I therefore also ask that, since it will last only half an hour, we be allowed to take Christmas lunch together. Can you describe uh, what it was like meeting him for the first time? Yes, he received us in a, in a room which was uh, separated by partitions and uh, he sat on one side of the table and we sat on the other side. Behind us were sitting the uh, four directors and um, uh, he received us by saying to me uh, what a uh, tall chap you are. I didn't uh, recall this from the, from the pictures I received. And... Um, there was, uh, of course, a sort of uh, emotional breakout, uh, but I was able to control it by making jokes. And how did he look? What did he, his condition look like? Yeah, he was um, recovering from a very bad illness. Uh, he had a perforated ulcer in the duodenum. And um, for the circumstances he was in and uh, the... The illness he went through, uh, he looked quite well. You couldn't, of course, touch him, could you? No, of course not. So there was no possibility of a handshake? No, no. This was completely forbidden. But surely after 28 years of not seeing your father, uh, it must have almost happened naturally that you'd reach out to touch him. Yeah, and in a way I learned to know my father the first time uh, in, in those days. Uh, but uh, my mother, uh, know, uh, knowing him uh, from the earlier days, also followed this uh, natural uh, reaction and uh, stretched out her hand. And I said to him, to her, be aware, uh, it's not allowed. But I made uh, use of this uh, natural uh, behavior one or two visits later, still in the hospital, that I came in and stretched out my, my hand and my father reacted immediately and um, gave me his hand and uh, the uh, directors uh, sitting behind were uh, really taken off their feet. What did you talk about on this first visit? I had set up a sort of a script for the, for the half hour. I uh, was uh, imagining that there would be an outbreak of... Uh, Emotions and uh, so I had uh, jokes uh, prepared. There was once uh, a situation where my mother was about to start weeping or screaming, and uh, I just covered this by interrupting and telling the joke. And uh, so 
It was for me a diffi uh, difficult and not an emotional visit. Did you bring presents for your father? No, we were not allowed. And your conversation, of course, was being listened to uh, by the four directors yeah. uh, throughout. Of course, they were listening throughout, and uh, they also had the... Um, there was a, a water also within the room, and um, the water started five minutes before the time was over to say still five minutes and still four minutes and still three minutes. My father became very angry about this and uh, then interrupted when he, think I, when I, he started saying still three minutes and said, uh, OK, it's good enough now. And do you remember departing? Yeah, of course. Uh, we went out and uh, looked back uh, in, in the door and saw him standing there a little bit bowed already and uh, greeting with his uh, hands and uh, we went out into the freedom and he still was kept there. In the following years, Wolf Rudiger Hess made 102 visits to his father in Spandau. He was never permitted to touch his father, to discuss the war or to ask personal questions and the visits were always monitored by the Spandau directors. Other visits were made to Hess by his wife and his lawyer, Dr. Seidel. Then, in 1987, Rudolf Hess reached the age of 93, and on the 17th of August of that year, Wolf Rudiger Hess received some bad news. I was in the office and I got the, the telephone call from a, from a reporter that, uh, who told me that something very serious must have happened to my father. Uh, he even might be dead. So what did you do? I went home and uh, called Dr. Seidel to come here. And um, then at the, in the evening at, I think, uh, 6.30 or so, Mr. Keane, the American director, who is the same name as you, um, he called me and said, uh, Mr. Hess, I, I'm allowed to tell you that your father expired at uh, 4 p.m. this day. I'm not allowed to give you any details. Eventually, a formal statement was issued to the effect that Rudolf Hess had committed suicide. The statement said that he hanged himself with a piece of cable in the Spandau garden shed while unattended. Yet many doubted that a frail 93-year-old would have the strength or dexterity to do just that. And no one was allowed to see the evidence. No, they did, they did not allow uh, neither Dr Seidel nor me. Dr Seidel is his lawyer. Uh, to see uh, the evidence, to see the cable, to see the hut or so. Uh, the cable there, Mr. Letissier, the British director, uh, told Dr. Seidel uh, that he personally destroyed it and uh, the hut was destroyed um, one or two days after his uh, death. So the evidence was all gone? The evidence was all gone and they were, they were, the directors were themselves trying, especially the British, uh, themselves trying to uh, to destroy them. There had been much debate as to whether the four powers would return Hess's body to his family. Yet, after an autopsy, the body was returned, and that brought a new twist to the story. The body was released to us uh, after the uh, autopsy uh, was carried out, and they did, of course, not expect that uh, we from the family would conduct the second autopsy. And what was the result of that? The result of that was that he had marks on his neck which were not um, pointing to suicide, but which were pointing to throttling. With murder, in other words? With, with murder, in other words. And um, 
If you hang yourself, the uh, marks uh, lead to a peak at the uh, back of your neck. But uh, in my father's case, they uh, were without any peak and they were just uh, uh, going uh, around. This verdict of murder was again confirmed by Dr Hugh Thomas, a former British Army doctor who had examined Hess in Spandau. This time, based on photographic evidence, he suggested that Hess was killed by strangulation, not by hanging. But who could have done it? According to the Hess family, it was the British who did it for one simple reason. Because the Russians uh, uh, were, in the spring of 1987, uh, gave indication that they were ready to release him. And this is the last uh, the British government uh, would like to see because then he could talk openly about uh, all the still unknown uh, facts behind his flight to Britain. They didn't want him out? No, definitely. They didn't want him out. And you think this is all documented now somewhere in Britain? Yeah, very obviously, because uh, they still keep uh, the, the documents uh, concerning the flight of my father classified or uh, hidden until uh, the year 2017. In his final years, Rudolf Hess lived a solitary existence in the fortress of Spandau, a sole prisoner in a prison built to hold 600. He was guarded by four world powers, Britain, France, America and the Soviet Union. 128 military guards with six watchtowers manned by soldiers armed with machine pistols. And inside that fortress, the loneliest prisoner in the world was awaiting his freedom. Yes, I think he had an image uh, uh, of uh, how he would conduct his life, uh, being freed, living in a, in a family home uh, in, the, in the Alps, where my mother uh, lived, and having his books and his reading material around him and um, being able to uh, go out and uh, all these things. And he had no intention to, uh, to enter politics uh, at all. He even uh, wrote a letter to the, to the directors in uh, uh, promising that he did not uh, intend to uh, enter into politics. So he was absolutely no political threat. He was no uh, threat to anybody. He was an old, ailing man and uh, only having one uh, hope in his mind that he could see his, uh, his uh, grandchildren. In his last days, Hess was partly blind, gaunt, stooped and feeble. He'd suffered a stroke and heart failure and above all, he suffered from the effects of isolation and loneliness. His was a life sentence, not for war crimes or crimes against humanity, but for crimes against peace. Even Lord Shawcross, who was one of the chief prosecutors at Nuremberg, argued in 1970 that Hesse's continued imprisonment was contrary to all notions of justice. If you uh, take into consideration that he originally uh, risked his life to uh, make peace in his flight to, to Britain and then was uh, convicted uh, because of... Um, uh, crimes against peace to life imprisonment and uh, was treated uh, in a very inhuman way. Uh, you only can uh, say that it is a disgrace. And my father was put into um, solitary confinement 
of uh, the worst possible kind and um, in the end they, they murdered him uh, because uh, they didn't want to, uh, to let him out. So the whole um, story of, of uh, Rudolf Hess is uh, something which um, will be remembered for decades or centuries. Today, Spandau Prison is gone. Its last inmate, prisoner number seven, gone too. His son, Vav Rudiger, still lives in Munich, a retired engineer in his late 50s. He campaigns in defense of his father, and he awaits the year 2017 when the files will finally be opened, perhaps resolving, once and for all, the mystery of that historic flight from Augsburg to Scotland on that warm, clear evening in May 1941. still one of the great mysteries of the Second World War and um, a lot of things are uh, still uh, undiscovered and uh, if you have uh, things like this you open the door for guessing and now after the um, death of my father it might well be that it uh, become the great mystery of all times. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Ohio, have you heard the buzz? Slinger's Signature Cocktails are the new go-to to go. Slinger's are convenient, canned, cocktail-inspired flavored beverages that bring you delicious flavors like Bahama Mama, Peach Screwdriver, and Pineapple Punch with 8% ABV. They pack a punch at a price you can't beat. No time to make fancy cocktails? Don't want to break the bank on a night out? Slinger's has you covered. Blast your taste buds, not your wallet. Grab Slinger's today. American Fermentation Company, Boston, Massachusetts. Please drink responsibly.